Coming up this hour, we're going to remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Uh, And then how long should pastors be out of ministry after their sin? You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Happy Friday. It's the end of the week. Glad that you've made it with us. We hope you're doing well. Uh, Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. As always, remember, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk, online at 1160hope.com. And you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. So Ian, I can tell that you and I have been doing this show for a long time now because I was watching the weather this morning during the Today Show, and tomorrow it's going to stop being so hot, and I'm not joking. My first thought was, that'll be really nice for Ian's run. <laughs> oh, wow. That is very kind of you to say. So that was my first thought. So you're you're about to, today's your last hot day. Did People are waiting. Did you get your run in today? No, not yet. No. Oh, but you're going to. Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm if, we can, if we can manage it. I continue to be impressed by you. Continue wow. to be impressed. But thank yep. you. Keep, Tomorrow, keep, that, gonna, keep that bar low. I will. <laughs> Tomorrow, it's going to turn a lot nicer. So uh, anyway, I hope you've had a great week. We are really thankful for those of you who take the time to join us. And a uh, lot of fun stuff to talk about today. Uh, one thing is, and I didn't even realize this while waking up, and I tell you often, I watched the Today Show, and they were talking about that today is the 57-year anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech on the uh, very famous March on Washington. Uh, And so I I was unaware of that uh, and so did a little bit of research. And there's about a four-minute clip that I want to play, a little long, but uh, I want to play this just as background, as uh, I learned a lot from just listening to this. And I think on a day like today, especially with all that's going on around us in our world, uh, it's good to go back and listen to this iconic speech and why it was iconic and what Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about. And so uh, let's listen to this and then Ian and I will respond to it. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. The March on Washington served as a massive push for economic and political justice for African-Americans. Held during the year celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, crowds marched on the National Mall to watch a variety of musical performances and speeches. Dr. King, a Baptist preacher and prominent civil rights leader, was scheduled to speak towards the end of the day, his debut on the national stage. Up until that point, King mostly addressed small crowds at black churches, rallies, or fundraisers. This time... He would be seen by nearly 250,000 people on the ground, as well as millions at home watching on television. This was an opportunity to reach a wide audience and persuade the public and the government to take action against racial injustice. The night before, King worked with a close group of advisors to get the speech just right. They worked through the night, settling on a final draft in the pre-dawn hours of August 28th. Interestingly, the phrase, I have a dream, a phrase he used in earlier speeches, was nowhere to be found in this copy. The words wouldn't manifest until almost halfway into Dr. King's speech, when gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, who had performed earlier in the day, called out to him from the sidelines to tell them about the dream. 
King set his prepared remarks aside and improvised the rest, crafting a soaring speech that would sear into the minds of millions of Americans. No, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The speech was divided into two parts. The first listed the injustices that African Americans faced, segregation, police brutality, disenfranchisement, and discrimination, and urged a call to nonviolent action. The second launched into King's dream of peace and racial harmony, a vision of a future in which people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. Highlighting King's skills as a preacher, I Have a Dream was part sermon and part poetry, using rhetorical devices like repetition, rhyme, and vivid metaphor to drive his points home. It was peppered with historic, biblical, and literary references that moved the crowd. This message of struggle and hope became the defining moment not only of King's career, but also the civil rights movement. Both the speech and the March on Washington were credited with helping secure the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a landmark piece of legislation that ended segregation and banned discrimination on the basis of race or sex in the workplace. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! The speech also resonated with activists around the globe. I have a dream. The phrase that wasn't even meant to be in his final draft appeared in political actions all around the world. It's considered one of the world's most transformative and influential speeches, alongside others like Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Winston Churchill's Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat. I Have a Dream is only one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s many achievements, but it's nonetheless one of the most pivotal. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. All right, in a very famous speech, but there's some stuff in there that I wasn't aware of. But I guess I want to start by just asking, when you hear parts of that speech um, inspired, what comes to mind for you as you hear that? Yeah, a number of us on staff have actually been reading uh, different speeches from King. And really? Yeah, it's been it's been remarkable. I've really appreciated reading them in in like their entirety. You know, it's not it's not a hot take, but like a lot of the things that get passed around as quotes and sound bites are exactly that. They're quotes and sound bites, but you know, actually reading, you know, entire letters or entire sermon manuscripts I found to be a really really like meaningful discipline lately because it feels like everything is sort of like flash in the pan or yeah. clickbait or or divisive, you know, often unnecessarily. So I've I've appreciated being able to like really sit in them and to kind of take honest stock like, wow, I don't I don't know that I ever knew he said this much or oh, I don't know that theologically. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know how I how I interact with that. You know, I think I think all of that's been a really uh, kind of interesting journey for me. Yeah. And so I learned in this that he didn't even have the eye of a dream portion in his written remarks, which is right. unbelievable. Let me ask you this as somebody I mean, you're going to the point of reading speeches and someone who thinks about this kind of stuff. 
why do you think of all of his speeches? And it was at a very important moment, the March on Washington. But why do you think this speech is so iconic and has endured for so long? I mean, I think because we've talked about this a good deal, even with uh, the conventions happening. You know, I think people are I think they will be perpetually inspired by hope. And I think Mm -hmm. when you talk about the mantra of having a dream, obviously, that's not universe somebody could stand up you know now and say i have a dream and then it'd just be a bunch of silliness you know that doesn't saying that you have a dream isn't what makes it powerful but i think like you were even you know kind of alluding to some of the unrest that was was already very prevalent and pervasive and obvious to paint a picture of a future reality is you know in a lot of ways what i think good leadership is it's sort of like i think andy stanley said something like uh, a good leader is preoccupied with what isn't yet or something, something like that believes that something else is possible. Mm. And, and it's not just, and again, it's kind of why I like reading some of them in long form because, you know, some of the quotes can sort of feel like, Oh, I don't, I don't know what to do with, with just that quick little uh, sound by that little mic drop moment, but it actually was a part of a much bigger movement, a much bigger sweeping uh, philosophy or ethos or call to action. And uh, I think that's part of why it's to the test of time is because people, you know, deep down, most people kind of long for those same types of dreams. I think that's exactly right. I, as I thought about the question, it was just that it was painting a vision uh, of what can be uh, in a, such a monumental time, I think, uh, was so needed. Well, we'd love to know what you think. It's uh, an important day to remember 57 years ago today on the March on Washington. Hey, over at Christianity Today, Ian, uh, on Ed Stetzer's blog called The Exchange, uh, this written by Aaron Earls, it's about a LifeWay research study that just came out uh, looking at this. Pastors are split over ministry return time for pastors who commit adultery. And now you and I spend a lot of time talking, or feels like, over the last year and a half about pastors, whether it be adultery or uh, mismanagement of funds or just any various things that have uh, kind of disqualified them from leadership. And I feel like you and I have had many conversations about how long should a pastor sit on the sidelines? How long should a leader sit out uh, before being re- restored? And what does that restoration look like? So I'd love your opinion on this. Let me read some of what Aaron Earls writes here, and then I would just love your opinion. Here we go. <clears throat> when a pastor commits adultery, most of their fellow pastors believe they should withdraw from public ministry for at least some time. A new survey of U.S. Protestant pastors by LifeWay Research finds 2% of pastors believe a fellow pastor who has an affair doesn't need to take any time away. Scripture doesn't mince words about adultery, said Scott McDonald, executive McConnell, executive director of LifeWay Research. From the Ten Commandments to the Apostle Paul's list of wicked things to the qualifications for an elder listed in 1 Timothy, adultery is not appropriate for a follower of Christ nor a leader of a local church, he said. Few believe less than a year is sufficient period. 3% say for at least three months. Another 3% say six months. 16% believe an offending pastor should stay gone for at least a year. Other pastors want them to be away from public ministry for a longer time. 10% said two years. 7% said five. 1% said 10 years. For more than a quarter of the pastors, 27% said a pastor who commits adultery should withdraw from public ministry permanently. 31% 31% said they aren't sure what the appropriate time frame should be. All right, so that's a lot of numbers there, Ian. For you, I'm wondering, where would you fall on that list? What would you say? And for you, is it a, is it about the amount of time or is it about what the process looks like? Oh, gosh. I, yeah, I think it needs to be both, obviously. Time without process isn't really meaningful. It's like, um, 
you know, this is a terrible example of your question, but I'm excited for it. I had a, a buddy who used to work in property management. He'd he'd always find these like really bizarre things, and they were you know they were allowed to keep it because it was the house was getting demoed or you know resold or whatever. And sometimes he'd find like alcohol, you know, like whiskey in a in a, mm-hmm. in a bottle. He's like, oh man, this has been sitting there for like at least ten years. It's probably delicious. It's aged, and I was like, I don't think. The aging in the glass is what you're looking for. I think you're looking, <laughs> you're looking for the aging in the barrels. So to say, like, hey, he was he was away ten years. Like, yeah, but he didn't go through any of the work. He wasn't he wasn't receiving any of the counseling, any of the spiritual direction. Just simply saying, well, I stepped away, so therefore I should be good. I I don't think I don't think that's true at all. I, I do agree with you. I think a lot of this has to do with time allowing a process to take place. Yeah. And uh, I don't think this is just for pastors, by the way, but but you and I are both pastors and I, I find this interesting. Um, I don't know. It's only 2% who said no time. That feels really problematic to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about the people who go, uh, let me put you, I don't know that you would have voted for this number, but that largest number of people who actually gave a number gave permanently. They said, I think they should permanently be pulled away from ministry. Um, that surprised me a little bit that there was no kind of restorative process. I wonder if you believe that that's to be a little bit harsh or is there good wisdom in that for you? I, I'm I'm closer to that maybe than you would be. I don't know yeah. that I would say ministry in general. So I would probably clarify and say something like, like upfront public ministry. That That's mm-hmm. the part that I, I often find the most problematic, but I I I could see I could see making a case for it to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Now I wonder if there's reasons for that. Let me do a little like self psychoanalysis. I, I think um, I mean again the the office of pastor of shepherd and the responsibility to lead but also to guide and protect God's people to say. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Did, like in your mind, does it matter at all if the affair happened with somebody under his care versus not? Does that change things for you? For me, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It I doesn't. Think, uh, okay. Mm-mm. Uh, I maybe the one under your care is a little more serious, but it, I guess it wouldn't diminish the other one for me. I think they're both equally uh, worthy of being uh, for the for the pastor to be sat down for a while, at least. So where would you, you put, where would you put yourself? Then you said you were surprised by not only the intensity, but also the the high percentage of people who agreed with that level of intensity. Yeah, it's hard because almost for me the process is more important than the time. Uh, like, because um, you could sit on the sidelines for a year and just be brooding and just be angry and just be, quite frankly, still having adulterous affairs sure. if nobody is is working with you. Like, I think I'm more concerned about what the process is. I think the process probably takes at least a year. I would get that's arbitrary, but uh, there's got to be counseling. And quite frankly, there's got to be a sign of brokenness and change that somebody else is speaking into going, I think that they're ready. Um, I think anything under a year I'd feel uncomfortable with. Um, but for me, it's more about process. But let me ask you this question. Okay. Uh, let me just tee you up here because I... I think this is, seems obvious, but there might be people out there going, listen, adultery is a private sin unless it gets exposed. As long as it stays private, keep it private. Let the guy or girl keep their job. What's the big deal? Why does a private sin have to be publicly dealt with? How would you answer that question? Oh, boy, you are putting me on the spot. 
before I answer that real briefly too, I think there's probably an added element to this that I would say if I if I didn't actually end up in the camp of saying, now you've, you've permanently disqualified yourself from ministry, I would also yeah. differentiate, like you might permanently have disqualified yourself from ministry uh, of this local body. Like that's really if, good. If, if yeah. restoration was to happen, I don't think it can be here. That might be, that's probably a whole other conversation. God, I like that. So, so many thoughts. Uh, the private public sin thing to me is a little bit of a myth. Um, I think scripture speaks to that, that. You know, when we sin against God, sin against brother. The idea also though, and I think that this is probably uh, relevant, when the church is described as the bride of Christ, right? there's a lot of marriage imagery. God really, really cares about uh, covenantal relationships. So it's not just, oh, I was with this girlfriend and then I made a mistake because I got drunk and I slept with this other, you know, that's obviously bad too. But the breaking of a covenantal uh, commitment and bond from the person who is who has been charged and commissioned and ordained to uphold such relationships to me is uh, is a greater affront than maybe we tend to talk about it in this culture. And that's not to say like, if you're listening and you've had an affair or um, you were a part of one or whatever, that you're beyond repair or redemption at all. I'm not saying that at all. I do think, and Brian and I are probably a little biased because we're pastors. Um, scripture does also speak to pastors and leaders being held to a higher account and this, I think, is one of those areas where that's the case. Yeah, I think that that's a great differentiation to make, too, because what we're not saying is the pastor who had the affair is not, can never be forgiven, could no, never be, no, 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 no. Right. Uh, can never be shown grace, can never be welcomed back into fellowship, whatever else it might be. This is uh, specifically about leading uh, the local church and, and being the head shepherd and being that. Uh, that pastor. And I think that, that we've got to be really careful about that. Uh, but absolutely, forgiveness is shown, grace is shown, restoration is shown. I think where churches get themselves in trouble, and we've seen this a lot with some more high profile pastors, is whether it be an affair or anger or whatever else disqualified them, uh, quickly wanting them back in because we like their preaching or uh, right. they're funny or they're, that's probably more flippant, but they're, they, they're good at fundraising. They're good at whatever. And uh, those are not reasons to bring a man or a woman back into yeah. into leadership. And I think we have to be really careful about that. Agreed. Well, over at Scott McKnight's blog on Christianity Today called The Jesus Creed, uh, he has a blog up there written by Mike Glenn, uh, came out today called It's Never Once and For All. What's going on with this blog? Well, would you like me just to read it? It's not that long. I really would. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's hope there's not big words in it. Here we go. Michael I'll follow along and help out. I appreciate that. Thank you. People who are not new to the show know I really struggle in this department. I said it's never once and for all. Like many of you, I've used this time of COVID quarantine to do some work around my house. That wasn't the plan when the quarantine started. When we were told to work from home, I was going to write a novel and begin an intense reading program in theology, New Testament studies, and other brilliant things. Well, that didn't happen, but I did get tired of looking at things that needed to be done around the house. So my wife and I started the process of doing some things that needed to be done around the house. We cleaned windows, touched up some painting, carried things to recycling, and a lot of other stuff to Goodwill. In fact, we took loads and loads of stuff to Goodwill, I would say, in the Simpkins household as well. But here <laughs> is what I noticed. I had done all of this before. I've painted the same walls. I've cleaned out the same attic before. How did all of this new junk get up in the attic? I carried it up there in a moment when I had had to make a decision. I chose to stuff it in the attic rather than deal with the item in a more effective manner. I want to get this house stuff done and I want to get it done once and for all. In fact, I want everything in my life fixed and I want it done right. and I want it done once and for all. 
once and for all, how many times do we say this during our daily conversations? We want to deal with COVID-19 and the pandemic once and for all. We want to settle our nation's racial tensions once and for all. We want our nation to deal with poverty, education, fix health care, and we want them all fixed once and for all. We want our marriages fixed once and for all. We want our children to set the course for their lives, and then we want them on automatic pilot once and for all. But we both know in our world, nothing stays fixed for long. Things wear out. Other things break. Some things go out of style and other things, well, they never really worked in the first place. Some things get exposed to weather. Other things work loose from the, uh, from the give and take of daily life. And it's just not our stuff that needs maintenance and upkeep. Everything about us needs upkeep. Our bodies, our minds, our relationships, even our faith. Everything will wind down into dysfunction if we do not pay attention to them. We get married and things are good. I think we can focus our attention on something else like our career or the children because everything at home is good. As soon as we do that, our marriage begins to fray at the edges. Ignore the needs of our bodies and suddenly we're overweight, sluggish, and lethargic. Start spending too much time on social media and neglect our serious studies and reading. And before we know it, our brains turn to mush. Like COVID-19, we just want things over with. We want a vaccine that we can take and be done with this pandemic once and for all. Yet, more and more, we're beginning to understand that we're going to have to live with COVID-19. Sure, a vaccine may take the lethal edge off a pandemic, but COVID-19 isn't going away. We're going to have to find a way to live with it. How will we do that? The same way we live with everything else, intentionally. We'll wash our hands more often. We'll fist bump instead of shaking hands. And we may even get used to wearing a mask. We'll make plans and then we'll follow through. It's the same way in our marriage. We're intentional. We plan date nights and short vacations. We carve out a little time every day to make sure we're connected and still on track with each other. We make plans to keep connected with our children and our friends. We set aside a little time to work out, keep our brains challenged through continual learning. And we pray. We read our Bible, even those passages we think we already know because there's always a new nugget in the sifting. We examine our lives carefully to make sure we're staying aligned to Christ's purposes and teachings. But didn't Jesus save us once and for all? Yes, but we leak. Whatever Mm -hmm. feeling of Christ's spirit we had yesterday evaporates and is used up on the wilderness trails of our lives. Every day requires a fresh encounter, a new infilling of the spirit. We get distracted with the cares of the day and our faith gets pulled and weathered. Our souls need constant maintenance. I know sometimes I, we just wish it was over and we could finally deal with all of this. That time will come soon enough. The Lord has promised us this. But until then, we'll stay intentional about checking on things. We'll paint what needs to be painted, tighten what needs to be tightened, and throw away what no longer works. Every day we'll do a little maintenance in some areas of our lives. Every day we'll check our souls to see how much we've leaked since yesterday. Today, once again, We'll remember Jesus promised nothing is done once and for all until he returns. That was Mm. great, man. That was so good. It's really good. And there's so many things of his practical examples there that I can relate to, right? Like uh, one of them that came to mind for me that he didn't mention here is like, I love to go outside and take care of my yard and weed and this and that. And you weed and then you're like, all right, I I did it. And then a week later, you're like, where'd all these other weeds come from? Yeah. (laughs) You got to go pull them again. But the marriage one, uh, you know, you get married and, and you're like, all right, we're going to deal with this issue. And you're like, all right, we finished it. And then it rears its head again. And right. uh, you think about that. He, he used all the examples I thought of, like about working out or about mm-hmm. uh, so many other things where you're just like, OK, now we're moving on to the next thing. And it makes me think of your 
uh, the, the uh, Eugene Peterson quote that we quote on here so often about a long obedience in the same direction. And, and that's what this feels like to me when we, when we talk about our spiritual lives, that, that we're on this long obedience in the same direction. And uh, there's going to be ups and downs and that imagery of things leaking, right? Like we're filled up, and, but it doesn't stay that way. It leaks. Uh, man, there's so much good here to just um, uh, to just chew on. What do you think happens when we don't live this way? When we're like, no, you know what? I'm a you know, my faith is done once and for all, or my marriage, or my kid, whatever it is. When we don't get this, what do you think the result is? I think he, I think he kind of outlines it. The, the problem, I think, and my my brother has talked with me a lot about this. He's he's a doctor, he's a chiropractor, he's an athlete, and he's talked a lot about um, some of like the the strange security that we lull ourselves into. Like I don't know, I think it's a Jim Gaffigan bit. Have you ever, have you ever heard his bit where he's talking about going to the gym? And he like makes no. fun of his weight a lot, but he's he talks about going to the gym. And a guy comes in and he's absolutely shredded. And Jim's like, what are you doing here? You're done. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're done. You won, man. You don't have to. But that's kind of the point, though. Like, we love, you know, we have a good stretch in our quiet time or with our marriage or with our kids. And I totally relate to his sentiment, by the way. I secretly am always longing for stuff to be, like, even little things. Like, I was cleaning out the fridge today. And I was like, why is the fridge a mess again? I just did this. And then you think about it, you're like, that was three months ago, Ian. Like, <laughs> yes, fridges yes, yes. get messy, man. You can't just do it once and then expect. You also have a one and a half and a two and a half year old at home. You know what I mean? There's certainly like stuff that sanctifies you a bit when you're like, hey, man, I know that you would like. Like, I've even joked, you know, if it were up to me, if I was like, like just a single hermit, it would be like a concrete floor with a bed and a desk and a lamp. That is like luxury to me. <laughs> like, you'd I don't think you sounds kids. like you'd be in prison. <laughs> yeah, kind of. That's sort of what it is. Like, I, that's all I really feel like I need. So it's like, hey, I love this like messy life with, with my wife and my kids. And some days are really unpredictable. And sometimes there's peanut butter smeared on the wall and you're going to have to clean it. And that's just part of it. And uh, I think that there's a, a passage in Proverbs. that I, I always forget the reference, but the passage is essentially um, – if you if you want a stable that's always clean, just don't put any ox in there. But if you if you want to actually be a part of the harvest, well, that's going to take some cattle. I'm like, oh, mm. I just I I've always found that to be so rich, and I think that's kind of what he's getting at here a little bit. Yeah, and the word in here is intentional. It requires yeah. intentionality. Uh, and here's something that I think we all know deep down: intentionality is tiring. Having to be intentional about marriage and and kids and my faith and my job, like like you said. You want to be able to just go into auto autopilot, but but we do know we know deep down if we're not intentional about things and we just let things go, the weeds are going to grow, the fridge is going to get dirty. What, however else imagery you want to use here, uh, and so I think that takeaway of our lives require intentionality, our marriages require intentionality, our personal health, uh, our our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with our children, it requires intentionality that. Yeah. Uh, that, that a lot of times is easy to ignore. And so uh, hopefully this is a wake up call. I, I really was challenged by this. And so hopefully you out there were as well. If you didn't, if you want to give it another read, uh, you could do so at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. I've told you, uh, I always have CNN on in the background, Ian, like I do this up in my bedroom, uh, do our show and I get CNN, but I keep the sound completely off just so I can read everything. And there's a guy who I can tell is just yelling in the interview right now, but it looks so funny because he's, I can't hear him right now. <laughs> have you ever watched yourself preach without the sound on, by the way? Uh, yes. I was instructed by a preaching professor years ago to do that. Yeah. To kind of pick apart body language that didn't make sense or like disagreed with the content that you were speaking. It's super yeah. humbling. Cause 
I usually, when I watch myself back, I'm already thinking, what are you doing? Don't say that. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Turn the sound off is like even worse. You're like, do I walk like that? Why are you making that face? Like, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very weird experience. I wonder if people realize if, if any communicator watches himself back, it's typically a horrific experience. <laughs> Yeah, at my church, we never really did any video. It was all only audio, right? And so until the pandemic hit. Right. And so that's really the first time ever that I've had the real ability to watch myself versus just hear myself. Have you enjoyed it? Uh, At times. But there's also, there have been times like what you were just saying where I'm like, stop moving your arm. Stop moving Uh your arm so much. Uh (laughs) Or like... Where are you look like you just start to be like, is that really what I look like? And so- yeah, I, I've I've thought about like taking muted video of me preaching and then trying to sync it up to like a wiggle song just for fun, just to <laughs> that, that would engage my kids more. Like, well, that's why he's he's singing the propeller song. That's why he's moving his arms like that. He's singing the propeller. Yeah, I have had moments of like, oh, maybe I don't want to be watching this right now. But yeah. Anyway, that is a tangent because the guy's yelling at me on CNN, but I don't know what he's yelling about. But. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, At Religion News, when we agree on principles but still disagree, uh, let me get us into this article because I think it's a really interesting one, uh, especially as we wrestle with politics and all sorts of other things. It says, often in our divided world, we disagree with someone about a principle. Person A says that what matters is reproductive freedom, and person B says that what matters is protecting the unborn. Person C says that what matters is protecting American security, And person D says that what matters is hospitality to refugees from tortured lands. Principles conflict and we can't agree on what's right. That's one kind of argument. It usually doesn't get very far because if we disagree on principles, we often find ourselves in a deadlock rather Mm -hmm. quickly. But sometimes we actually agree on principles while still disagreeing on how best to put them into practice. Mm -hmm. Person E says that what matters is compassion to the poor very happily. Person F agrees, but person F thinks compassionate care for the poor is best handled by the church and E envisions a greater role for the government Mm. or both E and F agree on compassion toward the poor and on the church's central role. But then they discover that they disagree about the best way to implement such compassion as person E believes in spending the church's resources on a targeted program to house a small number of homeless people while person F would rather offer free lunches each day at church to a large number of people. Uh, so it says, perhaps E and F agree on compassion on the respective roles of government versus church and on a massive free lunch program, but disagree on whether people should be able to get food every day or every week <laughs> and who's responsible for providing the food. It says, you get the point. Let's follow a move mainly made in Catholic moral theology and call this a distinction between judgments of principle and prudential judgments. That people can agree strongly on a moral principle, but disagree strongly on the best way to advance it. The latter is a prudential judgment rather than a judgment of principle. It is sometimes mistaken for a judgment of principle, however. E concludes that F is not adequately compassionate, but instead F has concluded that the best practice of the principle of compassion just looks different Hmm. from what E thought it should look like. When this happens... Mutual incomprehension and frustration are sometimes worse than if our interlocutors disagree on the principle itself. It is as if they are in the same moral neighborhood, which is great, but they find that just being in the same moral neighborhood hasn't resolved crucial differences of opinion between them. They had not expected this, and they find it quite 
frustrating. Let me stop there. I find this, I never thought of this and I find this fascinating and you see this all over the place, don't you? Yeah. I feel like I've thought about this without the language. Like I've thought about this much more dumbly is what I'm saying. I, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, oh yeah. Oh, there's a word for that. That's, I feel like I spend most days on the show thinking, oh, someone's got a doctorate in that. That's wonderful. That's great because I, it's just swimming around in nonsense in my brain, but I, yeah, I do find that really interesting. And I, I think that this is, I mean, what a timely, what a timely season for this article in the first place. But I do, I I mean, even as you were reading it, I was thinking of no fewer than half a dozen conversations I've had in the last month that I think would fit in this category. Really, really interesting. Absolutely. So going on, talks a little bit about Pope, Pope Francis facing some of this right now. And then it says, it helps to remember that a different kind of moral reasoning process is required with prudential judgments over against judgments of principle. To arrive at the most important relevant principle in most situations mainly involves resorting to the major norms of the moral tradition you are operating in. Hmm. But to arrive at prudential judgments involves analyzing often complex situations, assessing the motivations and behaviors of people under various conditions, judging anticipated outcomes of various courses of action, weighing costs and benefits of different approaches, and so on. Prudential judgments are best performed by people who have the relevant expertise and experience with the concrete issues at hand. (laughs) Excuse me. It's a conversation about practical wisdom in relation to important goals, but complex human realities. It also involves accessing that elusive realm called the factual or that even more elusive realm in which facts are projected for the future based on key assumptions and experiences from the past. It goes on to kind of use a sports analogy about football, but then ends this way. If you're morally passionate about a specific principle that you consider non-negotiable, that's great. But do not assume that even those who agree with you about that principle will agree with you about the best way to implement it in a particular set of circumstances. Agreement on the principle, if you can get that far, is the beginning rather than the end of the conversation. That is fascinating. Ian, what kind of a, what, how does this affect uh, individually how we think through politics as Christ followers? But also, what role do you think this plays or just an acknowledgement of this would even just play in the church? Well, part of what I appreciate at the very beginning of the article is mentioning what happens when you don't even agree on the principle, right? That's a good starting point, and that's yeah. a lot of us are in that camp where you're squaring off or you're preparing to square off with somebody. And like You just you don't see eye to eye. It doesn't mean that the person's an evil person. Uh, they might be, but they probably aren't, and you disagree. To talk about I, – I love the way he ended it. I kind of want to see a follow-up to this article, actually, to, to agree on principle as the beginning rather than the end of the conversation. I, I will probably say this. Not probably. I will say this. Uh, I think these types of conversations happen best in person. This is the kind of stuff that I feel like we often miss each other when it's just a series of uh, tweets and retweets and posts and replies. Like I have seen it go very, very well at times. I've even honestly on our Facebook page seen people offer insight and perspectives that the other person hadn't considered. They really agreed on the principle but you kind of in the comment section go back and forth and the person ends up saying, you know what? That's actually a very interesting way of seeing it. I, I never would have considered that. I appreciate that so much. But I do think this kind of dialogue, it, it really is best in, in person because of so mm-hmm. many of the other nuances that the article mentions. And you can't read the person's body language. It's hard to be – it's not impossible, but it is hard to be like – truly empathetic towards someone else's perspective when you can't see them at all. You know what I mean? I think that that helps us kind of remember the humanity between us. We're not just debating ideas. You know, we're debating with another human, another image bearer. And that's important, I think, to keep at the center of these debates. 
Yeah, and that, just that last line, agreement on principle is the beginning rather than the end. Because uh, when you disagree on principle, you can just go, well, we fundamentally disagree. And there's not much more. We can still be in relationship and still talk, but we don't need to talk about this much more. Uh, but it's when you agree in principle, uh, it can cause greater frustration when how you work that principle out is yeah. kind of when you're different with that. I think this is fascinating. I never, like you said, had the framework of how to think about this. But now that you do, you read an article like this, you're like, oh, this happens all the time. Uh -huh. This is happening all the time. And uh, so go ahead and read that at our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show out of uh, religion news. Well, the first hour is in the books. One more hour to go. We're going to come back and talk about family dynamics when it comes to who to vote for next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Kind of this hour, we're going to talk about family dynamics as we vote. Uh, so we're going to discuss slavery and then what is happening to Americans' mental health during the coronavirus pandemic. You are listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fowler. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find everything we've discussed here on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Lots of good conversation going on there. Uh, you can also find the same articles at Twitter and Instagram. Find the shows at 1160hope.com and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Ian, I, I have new news for you. Ready for it? There is an election coming up in November. Were you aware? No, I was too busy realizing that today is National Power Rangers Day. It's also National Bowtie Day. And you'll National. be happy to know it's National Cherry Turnover Day. A lot of cherry holidays right now. Wow, all in one week. Woo! Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. National Power... Really? Do we think the Power Rangers... Huh, I don't even know what I think about this. Are they uh, are they worthy of their own day? I'm confident you and I are not worthy to assess that. <laughs> I mean, we right people. Don't you think we grew up? Power Rangers was kind of when we were growing up. I think. Mm, I, I was never think, a big. I don't think that's true. I think we're. Am too I wrong? Important. All right, all right. And what was the second one? National Bowtie Day. I feel like at some point in your life you went through a bowtie stage. Am I right? Uh, that point is right now. Really? I mean, I I like a bow tie now and again. I don't actually know how to tie a proper bow tie. My Ooh, brother, though, I'll give, I'll give him some props. He made wooden bow ties for everyone in my wedding party that were fantastic. He made wooden bow ties. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you always have those couple of friends who is like, I have one friend who's a teacher, and every day, every single day, he wears a bow tie to class. So. Uh, I don't think you can like just be a casual bow tie person. You're either a bow tie person or you're not. So if you're a bow tie person, today's your day. Uh, happy bow tie day. <laughs> All right. I bring up the election for this reason. Christian Headlines had two different articles this week, and I, it's not the content of them that I found interesting, uh, but it's who they're about. So the first one says this. Uh, this was on Wednesday. Biden-Harris vision of America, quote, leaves no room for people of faith. Sissy Graham Lynch says that name Graham might sound familiar. She is the granddaughter of Billy Graham. So granddaughter of Billy Graham says Biden-Harris vision of America leaves no room for people of faith. Uh, the same day at Christian Headlines, we read this. Billy Graham's granddaughter urges Christian women not to vote for Donald Trump. Hmm. So same day. Two different articles, uh, 
two different granddaughters of Billy Graham. One of them saying you cannot vote for Biden or Harris and Harris. Same uh, same day. Granddaughter, two says no Christian women. You cannot vote. Let me urge you not to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I found that fascinating, man, because what's the old saying uh, with family? You should never discuss politics and religion. Right. And so I disagree uh, entirely, by the way, I do, too. But it is a saying. I think I got it right Uh they're coming into the election. I suspect eh, there's going to be a lot of tense family dinners over uh, who one is following, who one wants to vote for. And I wanted to highlight that just with these two stories. So I guess, uh, do, you, do you agree with the, well, you'll agree with it. Uh, how would you uh, advise families to navigate politics? Because I totally agree with you. Politics and religion, we need to be speaking of those with the people closest to us. But especially in an election that is this heated right now and, and has this much emotion, how would you uh, advise people in the family structure to talk about politics and not allow it to ruin their families? Uh, don't be a jerk. That's probably my, it's, it's my comprehensive. No, I, I will add a, a caveat, though. I think um, I don't think every family needs to talk about it. I, I think that there are, are honestly some environments where it's it's probably volatile maybe not safe emotionally oh, whatever okay, to, okay. So I, i'm not saying yeah if you're family you need to it's your, i'm not saying that at all i do think sometimes it's unfortunate that that mantra has has gained so much uh rootedness in our culture like hey you know when you go home for the holidays don't bring up yeah. this this or this and i'm like well if again again if it's a healthy safe environment shouldn't those be the people we should be learning how to disagree you know because i don't think that's a unique thing that families disagree on these things, but it almost feels like training ground for like, here, here's how you can disagree with people out in the world and coworkers and people that live in your dorm or whatever. Like, I think that we have an opportunity to model that as families. Like, Hey, we can disagree on this and it can even get heated depending on your comfort level. And that doesn't change how much we love each other. Like I, I had a, an elder when I was at Poplar that, you know, he and I would kind of go after it. And then at the end of a meeting, we'd go grab a beer together. And people are always like, wait a minute, you and him, weren't you guys just like yelling at each other? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but we love each other though. Like there's no, there's no, there's no blood loss there. And I think uh, we, we, we learn that I, I think again in healthy environments, you know, in the family context. Yeah, absolutely. And it does feel like culturally we're having less and less ability to do that. That, that picture you just painted, we're going to disagree vehemently. Uh, we are going to argue about it passionately, our views, and then we're going to say, hey, I love you, brother. Let's go out and have a drink or let's go yeah. get a bite to eat. Um, why do you think we're a do you think we're losing that ability? And if so, why do why is that something that we're losing culturally? Do you think I don't actually I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. I don't think we're losing the ability. I think we're losing the willingness. The, mm. the ability is, I think I might be speaking out of turn. I think we always have the mental capacity to do that i just think it it's we're losing and again we that's a huge sweeping we there's pl there's plenty of people listening they're like wait a minute i still have these tough conversations i'm still engaging in dialogue like right. i to totally understand that but it does feel like by and large we are less and less willing to engage in those types of conversations and even just you know we've talked previously about you know hovering over that unfollow button on facebook which i totally get i Sometimes for your mental, spiritual sanity, go ahead and unfollow them. That's fine. But when we like, you know, 
when that go when that runs out to its logical end and we just are like perfectly curating our newsfeed to only be people who look and talk and act and think and vote and believe just like I do, well then yeah, that makes sense that we might be less and less and less willing at our core to want to even want to engage with people who disagree with us other than you know the mic drop or the hot take, which is not the kind of engagement that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and to be you, some people might be wondering, is this actually an issue? Is this something you guys are creating? Anecdotally, I I was I've had a couple conversations with different people uh, in in kind of my sphere of people who have strained relationships with their parents right now, or strained relationships yeah. with close family members right now over the upcoming presidential election and the inability to go, hey, I love you, we're going to disagree on this, but that it's actually strained relationships. Uh-huh. And, and that's why I think this is really important uh, to be able to argue well, because then it becomes an issue for the church as well. Like, can we as the church look different from culture? Can we uh, be disagree? Can we disagree without being disagreeable? Can we uh, have unity while we're not don't have uniformity, however you want to say it? Uh, because, you know, the Bible talks often of that. Um, I'm actually preaching Philippians 2 this week and the beginning of Philippians 2 is about Paul's call to unity. Uh, and, and it just is such a huge deal. I, you know, I don't like to live fearful, but I do worry for these next couple months leading up to November that, uh, just the culture we live in and the, um, the mudslinging and the cable news, social media kind of environment. I just, I, I have my worries. I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope we, as the church can get this right. Uh, but I have my worries. And for some of you, you worry about that around the Thanksgiving table and around it. And, and hopefully this helps you. Uh, as Ian said, have those conversations with passion and honesty, but also some perspective. Uh, so John MacArthur has been in the news a lot lately. We've discussed him a lot. John MacArthur, particularly if you're if you're like, oh, that name sounds familiar, uh, but I'm not sure uh, who he is. He's the pastor of a huge church out in uh, California where he has been a really vocal out front, I'm going to fight the government about the church not being able to meet. So his church of multiple thousands of people uh, has been meeting, very little social distancing, no masks, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, John MacArthur has been out front of that. Uh, and But John MacArthur has been a well-known pastor for a long time, lots of commentaries and books. Uh, and it's certainly one, a guy who's a pastor who is not uh, he, he's willing to share his opinion quite freely on things. And so uh, there was this uh, video, and I don't know how it starts passing around, but the way the internet works, the way Facebook and Twitter works is once someone starts passing stuff, it starts to go viral. It starts to go around. Uh, and it was a uh, from 2012, John MacArthur doing a sit down uh, and talking about slavery and true liberty. So slavery and true liberty. Uh, and so, Ian, here's what I want to do. I want us to listen to what MacArthur has to say. And uh, and then I, I know this is going to have a lot of reaction for people. So I, I'd like to have a little discussion about it. This is about uh, two minutes long uh, or three minutes long. Let's listen to what Pastor MacArthur had to say here. It is a little strange that um, we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses. You know, there have been abuses in marriage. We don't have an aversion to marriage, particularly, because there have been abuses. There, there are parents who abuse their children. We don't have an aversion to having children because some parents have been abusive. Of course, it can have any kind of situation where abuse can, can be involved. The reason unions grew up in America was not 
to free slaves. The reason unions grew up in America was because there were people who had businesses and they were abusing their employees. So to throw out slavery as a concept simply because there have been abuses, I think, is to miss the point. In any kind of human relationship, there can be abuses. There can also be benefits for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. If you had the right master, everything was taken care of. So we have to go back and take a more honest look at slavery and understand that God has, in a sense, legitimized it when it's handled correctly by saying this is the way you're to view your relationship to Jesus Christ. The perfect, all-wise, all-loving, all-compassionate, all-beneficent Lord, and you willing to be his slave because of such unique care provided by him. If you ask me to be a slave, I will simply ask you one question. Who is my master? If you tell me that my master loves me with a perfect love from which I can never be separated, if you tell me that my master will pour out all his riches on my behalf and hold nothing back, if you tell me that my master knows me and knows what is best for me and in every case will provide everything that is best for me, if you tell me that my master will use me in the advancement of his own enterprises and that I will share in his reward, if you tell me that my master will make me as a son and give me all that he possesses as an heir of his own true son, if you tell me that my master will forgive all my sins and reward me forever, I can't sign up fast enough to be a slave of that master. And, and that is the issue. Slavery is not objectionable if you have the right master. It's the perfect scenario. Everything you need is met and more in a caring, loving environment where God provides all that we need through Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. All right, Ian, lots of uh, commentary up at our Facebook page. But I'm just wondering, I, I know you saw that passing around. I'm just wondering your thoughts uh, when you first heard it and now when you've heard it some more. I don't love it, Brian. <laughs> I assume so. Why not? Uh, why not's the wrong question. Talk to us more. Why don't you love it? Uh, let me first read some of the comments and then I'll I'll unpack my thoughts. So okay. uh, Kirsten said, yikes, kind slave owners still used human beings for their sole advancement. That's not kind, but abusive and purely selfish. There's no type of enslavement that's not dehumanizing. It's still looking at another image bearer and defacing that image. Hmm. Uh, other people were posting things like, I have no words. Uh, Jessica said, goodness, if masters had been the way he describes, uh, AA would have been allowed to vote, uh, have education, and have uh, freedom, and wouldn't be slaves as we know slavery. The problem was not that there were abusive masters, but that the system made masters believe they were above their slaves and didn't treat them equally, didn't do anything he said, because they were not Christian masters, even if they believed they were. They were human, greedy, selfish masters who treated their slaves not as sons, but as property. Mm. Um, Annabelle said, I agree with what he said in the spiritual dimension and also agree that there were some kind slave owners who uh, whose slaves stayed with them after being granted freedom. But as a whole, the system was too corrupt and there was way too much abuse. And even with a kind owner, 
imagine being an adult and having to ask permission to leave the property. I wouldn't like that no matter how kind my owner was. God is infallible. Being a slave or a servant to him is different. So those are some of the responses. There's mm-hmm. a, a number uh, more on the on the page there. I think I think part of what I find tricky, and I know that John MacArthur is uh, not an intellectual slouch. I know that he's read and written numerous books, and I've probably even used some of them in writing my own sermons over right. the years, to be perfectly transparent. The idea, though, I mean, even one of the lines, I think he said something like, the benefits of slavery. That was one of the ones that sort of made my skin crawl a little bit. And to conflate or even draw a connection or correlation between the kind of position and service we have to God in a human way, to me, is problematic at best. And some of the comments sort of alluded to it, too. Like, well, yeah, the, the type of benevolence that God is capable of, we we just are not this side of heaven, you know? So to to draw a bridge between the two and say, like, well, yeah, there was some good stuff, too, especially, and, like, this matters, especially as a white man, a white, powerful man. That uh, that additionally, I think, rings pretty tone deaf. And again, you like you said a couple times, way back in 2012, that was not that long ago. Right, That's right. Not, not long enough that to for, justify it, for sure, for sure. Right, a lot, not long enough for, for those comments to not have sounded really odd back then, too, to be honest. What if I'd said way back in 1812? <laughs> we got a YouTube video of that? Yes, exactly. There were some weird spots in here for me. Uh, the first was going, well, just because some people uh, treat their spouses poorly or just because some people are bad parents doesn't mean that marriage or parenting is a bad thing. And that felt like just a weird correlation. And I told you this the other day when I first saw it. It felt like uh, MacArthur here, uh, if he had inserted the word boss and and employee, as we know, that's actually what he was talking about. But he wasn't talking about it. But that's where it was like, oh, if you have a benevolent boss and you're the employee, you know, it kind of made more sense. But to, I don't know, man, to be like, oh, slavery done in its purest form is a benefit to everybody, I think is such a, I almost said a difficult point to make. It's just a, it's just a, uh, it's a wrong point to make. And it's a hurtful, the amount of uh, people who have been hurt by slavery over the years uh, and the ramifications still that we have in our culture through that, I think. Yeah, it's um, not okay. Not well, okay. let me ask you this question, because uh, maybe you've gotten this, you know, as a pastor, maybe uh, Ian, there is slavery throughout the Bible. Uh, Old Testament, Philemon, Paul talks about slaves and how do they, was God saying slavery is fine? Was there something about the culture? How do you deal with slavery in the Bible? Because, uh, uh, yeah, I do think that's where MacArthur was coming from. I think, give me two sets, give me five seconds on that. <laughs> I, I can't even do that, man. I think that's a, that's a whole other segment that we, we would have to take a deeper dive into. Sometimes the commercial break sneaks up on you, but I would love for you to go watch this people. It's at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. We'll dive into that another time. So over the last five or six months, however long this COVID-19 pandemic has been going on. One thing that we've wanted to highlight is uh, the kind of uh, behind the scenes costs of the pandemic uh, beyond even COVID-19 itself. And one of the things that we'll never fully get a, a grasp of, it will take years, is the uh, the mental health toll uh, that is going on because of COVID-19. There was a study the other day, a survey 
that said any upwards of a quarter of respondents of teenagers have said that they've thought about suicide during the pandemic. It's just craziness. Uh, so this article at Yahoo says this, the pandemic has driven Americans to depression and drinking, the CDC says. It says the coronavirus pandemic has led to a marked deterioration in Americans' mental health, according to the new CDC uh, study made public on Thursday. That study, which surveyed uh, 5,412 Americans, found that 41% of respondents reported at least one adverse mental or behavioral health condition. According to the new study, 31% of respondents were suffering from symptoms of anxiety or depression. 26% experienced symptoms of traumatic disorder. 13% were using drugs or alcohol more heavily or for the first time to cope with the pandemic. And 11% had seriously contemplated suicide. Uh, younger adults, racial and ethnic minorities, essential workers, and unpaid adult caregivers reported having experienced disproportionately worse mental health outcomes uh, than others. And it goes on to say that significantly more than 90% of respondents said they were not being treated for anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress disorder before the pandemic struck, meaning that their symptoms arrived with the coronavirus and its attendant social disruption. That's a lot to just kind of take in, Ian. But uh, now that they're starting to get some numbers to this, uh, this is a pretty heavy, these are some pretty heavy findings here, don't you think? I I totally agree. What do you do with these numbers? Are they surprising to you? Uh, or are these kind of where you would have thought they would have landed out? I don't even know how to answer that question, to be honest. Like, I don't have any previous pandemics to compare it to you know what i mean like that's part of what makes so much of this so tricky i guess anecdotally if i'm just going based off of uh friends conversations slash memes slash other news i'm consuming i don't necessarily think this is surprising i think it's really really important in fact we we're working on a series right now that'll happen a little uh, a little later in the fall and uh, we're calling it mind matters and we're spending, I think, four weeks talking about mental health, talking about wow. anxiety and depression and suicide. And like half of the messages, we're going to be interviewing like a mental health expert about that particular topic. And every single one of those brainstorms and drafts that we've been working on, I keep thinking, gosh, this is so needed. It's so timely because of articles like this. So I, I think, uh, yeah, it's I mean, I should say it is still really discouraging, even though it's not that surprising. But what I guess I'm sort of teeing up is I think the church really has an opportunity to talk specifically to some of these things. I know a lot of different churches, you know, we were even talking about this a couple of days ago, you know, like, well, I can't really tackle these issues because I'm more of a verse by verse <laughs> preacher. I'm like, oh, there's it's still in there, man. There's still stories and uh, opportunities, I think, to address it. And I think it is a really, really important thing for the church to to take seriously and, and maybe put some put some energy behind. So we've certainly talked about this uh, time to time here, but wondering uh, if there's somebody out there right now, what would you say to them where they're like, yeah, you know what? I think this is describing me a little bit. I do feel, you know, that, that this is wearing on me, that I, I do feel a bit of depression. I do feel whatever else it might be. I am using drugs and or alcohol to cope more often. If, if there's somebody out there listening right now and they're going, hey, I, I think this is a little bit where I'm at. What would you encourage that person? Maybe a first step, second step. What would you encourage that person to do? 
I mean, first tell somebody, you know, tell someone you trust. It doesn't need to be a Facebook post or a tweet, but someone that you, you know, you trust, not only that you trust, but that, you know, loves you, which Mm -hmm. I I imagine is probably part of why you trust them. But there's a lot of hotlines, a lot of websites, a lot of, lot of free resources. I would encourage uh, Anthem of Hope is one that has all sorts of, it not only provides all the, you know, all the resources, but it's, it's also got like a whole section full of like free eBooks that you can download based on like the specific thing you're feeling. And uh, there's, I mean, again, there's a lot more you can do in that regard, but at the very least, if you're even thinking like this could potentially maybe be me, uh, tell somebody. And, and again, we've talked about this in a number of different ways. Unfortunately, it does feel like mental health conversations have been, and in some circles really continue to be stigmatized in religious circles, Christian in particular, uh, which I think is, unhelpful and really unfortunate. And so I think, and again, you can honestly just even message us. Like if you're Mm -hmm. someone who, whether you're in Chicagoland or not, and you're like, okay, I'm reaching out. I need, I need help. I don't even know where to turn. I don't even know. Are there, are there counselors in my area or what was the website you were mentioning? Like if that's you, seriously, don't hesitate to send us a message or, uh, or reach out to us in some way. And we can definitely get you in touch with somebody that can help. Yeah, you raise an important point about the stigma, I think, that that has been in the religious world and the Christian world through the generations, the past couple generations, at least uh, when it comes to uh, counseling, when it comes to mental health. I know uh, I think I grew up with that sort of stigma. I think uh, I remember talking to somebody. Gosh, who was it? I was talking to somebody about their parents the other day who were elderly and they their parents had gotten divorced. And she looked she said to me, if if people had thought it was okay to go to counseling in their generation, they would have made it. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. Just to acknowledge that she's like, yeah, they weren't going through more than a lot of us go through. It was bad, but a lot of us go through it, but they just weren't willing to get any help. It wasn't what you did. Uh, for those people out there who kind of, they sense that. Why do you think that's true? Why do you, we and I both feel that in the church world, I think less than we used to, but why, why would that ever be true? Yeah, we did a, a list a couple of days ago on on some of the the chief reasons that sometimes it's perpetuated. It's a myth of like, I don't know, one that I hear a lot is like, well, can't I just pray it away? Or a Christian shouldn't struggle in this way because Christ is victorious. Or, you know, it does. We do sometimes, I think, build bridges between theological truths and maybe misappropriate the implications they need to have in our lives. Again, it's, a you know, like a much... Uh, a much gentler example maybe is somebody who maybe they're introduced to Jesus via the prosperity gospel. And so their assumption is, okay, if I pray this prayer, then my whole life is going to be up and to the right constantly. You know, they hit a bumpy patch and they feel like God's let them down or they did it wrong. That seems to almost be more common. Like, Oh, maybe I didn't pray hard enough. or I didn't pray in the, in the right way. And there must be something with me. And I think part of what I think gets frustrating for me is, church's unwillingness to say, Hey, um, collectively as a community, it's, it's part of our responsibility to care for people in this way, not to shame them or not to make them feel like, Oh, well, God must not love you. Or you just didn't pray hard enough or, yeah. or any of those examples, you know, to let, to let people know, like, Oh, we're, we're here for you. And we think that this might be a helpful course of action. Yeah. And, and let me just close out by reminding you, if this is where you're at, know that you're not alone. That's what these statistics tell us. Uh, but yeah. more than that, there's people who love you and and to reach out. And Ian has said it before. I remember you saying, and sometimes it's asking too much for you to reach out. So if you're out there and you know somebody who might be struggling, uh, reach out to them. Tell me, love them. Uh, yeah, see right. how you can help. 
Uh, I think it's a good call to churches to take this seriously. But uh, the pandemic's not going anywhere right now. This is going to continue to be an issue uh, that we need to talk about. And uh, so, again, if this is you, as Ian even said, if you've got nowhere else to turn, we would love to talk to you. Feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can send us a private message. Uh, and we would love to get back to you. So as we close out the show, I have just noticed kind of a heavy couple of uh, a couple of segments here talking about slavery and mental health and now an article about the avoidance of death. But I think we can turn this and uh, end the show. <laughs> spoken, on, like a, spoken like a true pastor. End I the show on a happy note. I did just kind of look at these going, oh, tough way to end the week. <laughs> happy Friday indeed. Happy Jeez. Friday everywhere. Where am I at today? <laughs> I promise I'm doing well. Uh, anyway, this is at The Critic uh, by a guy by the name of David Sargent. You found this article called Life Has Become the Avoidance of Death. What is? Uh, why don't you get us into this article and we'll see where it takes us. Oh, sure. Put it on me after all that. Like, you're the one. Nope. You. Nope. <laughs> this, has been, this has been the hour of like, you posted this video. You chose this article. Yep. I'm trying to run from this one as fast as I can. <laughs> Life has become the avoidance of admitting this is your article. That's what it is. Yeah. Says, I must confess that gratitude was not always forthcoming whilst jolsting for service at a crowded pre COVID bar. Yet the now silent sterility of Britain's once bustling pubs perfectly personifies our new normal. That's a sentence. Separated into smaller bubbles, prohibited from interacting with others, the demise of such establishments is an inevitable consequence of enforced estrangement. While pubs on one level are just a, uh, what's that word? Convival? Convivial. 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 <laughs> I know. I've never seen that word in my life. Me neither. Way to dress up our social hopes. The pandemic state of these illustrate of them illustrates a wider truth for life. The way we live it now means that uh, means that the avoidance of death is more important than what we do with what we've got. Hmm. When COVID nineteen emerged, many millions of drifting souls, finally forced to confront their own mortality, looked uh, to their governing elite for direction, and unsurprisingly, found neither courage nor perspective, just naked fear. Politicians quickly established that success would not be measured by the moral integrity, sustainability, or wider consequence of their decisions, nor even on nuanced comparisons between affected nations, but solely on the headline number of direct deaths from COVID screeched repeatedly by ratings-obsessed journalists. As such, they eagerly, noisily affected to cede control to, quote, experts tasked not with the holistic consideration of risk and reward, but pursuit of a tunnel vision crusade to defeat a highly communicable disease by any means necessary. Almost immediately, every relational, fulfilling, communitarian component of human existence was sacrificed with society, whipped into frenzy by a compliant press, happily policing its own lack of dissent, transfixed by the felicitous elimination of preventable death. <laughs> Television cameras scoured intensive care wards for the most dehumanizing footage of suffering. Death was afforded uh, unprecedented power as a weapon transformed into a tool for behavioral modification. So I guess the perspective from this author is uh, a bit obvious now at this point. What do you think so far? Yeah, I find it uh, he is right in the sense that a lot of COVID-19 has just been about death and the dying numbers. I told you I have CNN on uh, and for the last five months, they've had like a running ticker just of uh, of the number of deaths. And it's important like that's, you know, we're trying to avoid it. But uh, one of the things and one of the reasons I kind of wanted to end with this article uh, was to ask the question, what happens uh, when we live our lives just to avoid death or we're just with uh, and we missed you remember that poem? What's it? It's very famous called the dash. 
right, Vadash, mm-hmm. that, that there is coming a day where it's all going to end. But but how we live that dash, how we live our lives is is what is important, making the most of our days. And, and I think uh, that this whole uh, pandemic for some of us has highlighted that, like if it's just about locking ourselves away so as not to, you know, uh, become one of those numbers, what is being missed out? What is being uh, what what is being lost? So. Uh, I do think that is an important thing. What do you, what do you think about where he's going with this? Yeah, I think that there's, um, you know, obviously an, an assuming of the underlying narrative, which I guess is probably what we're all doing. It's probably a little bit of what we're doing here, even with the show. Sometimes, you know, we're trying to decipher motive and it's hard not at times to feel a little bit like, mm, like armchair coaches. You know, we've definitely done our fair share of like, Oh, they're just saying this, or they just did that, you know, not really having, you and I have probably put our foot in our mouths more often than we even realize just because, you know, we, we're not political scientists and we're not doctors and we're not lawyers. So right. that is, that is part of the difficulty. I think of like assuming some of the subtext behind all of this, but I think it's, I think it's an interesting take. Yeah. Yeah. Let's continue it. It says, uh, <clears throat> In the avoidance of death at any cost, life is homogenized and cheapened. Uh, Whilst well-intentioned, a desire to, quote, save to often results in callous indifference to those who were dying. Uh, Family members, their deepest instincts dulled by the daily prophecies of doom of self-aggrandizing briefings were prevented from embracing those in the final throes uh, of life. Uh, Let me ask this question. I want to make sure we have time for this question. I'm going to give you a pastoral question. Uh, to end hopefully on a little bit more of a cheery note, how as Christians, as Christ followers, would you say we're to kind of, what's our perspective of death and how is that different? And how does that provide hope than say how culture, how the world, how non-Christians might view death? How's the, how's the Christ follower to view death? Oh gosh, that's what you're going to leave me with. How's the Christ follower to view death? Or I mean, where's hope? Of, uh, in, where, where's hope in the midst of the? Yeah, I, I got it. I got you. I think of First Thessalonians mm, four, maybe, where where Paul is saying uh, we don't want you to grieve as those without hope, right? And I think there's a lot packed in there because he's not saying, "Hey, don't grieve," because death is. There's an inevitable tearing. I, I think for the Christ follower, death is maybe the quintessential bittersweet moment, right? It's bitter for really obvious reasons because, you know, if you've lost somebody, there's like this, but I want them here. And now they're not, you know, that's really painful, but also sweet in the sense that we know, man, no more pain, no more suffering for that yeah. person. They're now in the presence of their maker and, in you know, just in full view of, of all that glory. So like bittersweet is often how I will talk about it. But I think when Paul talks about not, not having to grieve in a way that it is without hope. Like I think of when, when Jesus says, you know, where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. It's sort of this, like, is that all you got? You know, it's sort of, it's almost like a taunt. It's like a, when, when Jesus says elsewhere, then like, yeah, you're going to have hardships. You're going to have trouble. Um, I've overcome the world though. Like I, I came out on top, like death, sin, violence, destruction did its very worst to me. And I, I still landed on top. And I think remembering that doesn't make death any less uh, painful, but I do think it actually like removes some of the sting, even when people tragically pass uh, too soon. You know, we still very much so grieve. There's still heartbreak this side of eternity, but um, we have, I think, a deeper assurance that at some level Paul is calling us to like, yeah, 
there's an ultimate hope though that uh, we get to kind of set our gaze upon. And I think that that's just really, really important to do, but not of the diminishment of like present grief. We need both, I think. Agreed, agreed. That's why Paul in that in that verse in Philippians chapter one that is so confusing uh, outside of an understanding like this, where he says, hey, for me to live is Christ. While I'm living, it's all about Jesus. It's That's the mission. That's the lens through which I'm seeing this. But to die is gain. And to remember that he wrote that while facing death. <laughs> and he had this vision of like, uh, this perspective that said, hey, uh, you know, there there is what you were just talking about, uh, a presence with my Savior, and that that gave him some sort of freedom and it gave him hope. And so if you're out there struggling with all that's around us, the coronavirus, or maybe you're having very uh, specific health issues right now or family health issues, hopefully that can solve, that could be some sort of encouragement. As Ian said, it doesn't take away the grief and the pain and the struggle, uh, but it does, it, you know, we don't struggle and grieve without hope and uh, want to leave you with that today. Again, if anything we've talked about, you would like to talk further about, you can send us a message on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Ian, my friend, have a great weekend. Enjoy a uh, cherry popsicle for me. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. Nope. Have a good avocado, Brian. Enjoy. <laughs> for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.